The first active combat I ever saw was on television when I was a college student. The 42-day war known as Operation Desert Storm, or the First Gulf War, started when President George H.W. Bush invaded Iraq on January 17, 1991. Saddam Hussein had invaded and annexed neighboring Kuwait, resulting in international condemnation. The U.S. led the, US led the charge to liberate Kuwait and to secure our oil interests in the region. Because the whole operation was televised live, Operation Desert Storm was nicknamed the Video Game War. It was the first time that Americans could sit in their living rooms and see the war happening. We could watch bombs fall on Iraqi homes in real time. We could see the night sky light up and know that someone was being killed at that very instant. From black and white photos of Civil War carnage, from letters about the horrors of the trenches in World War I, from dramatic World War II newsreel footage played in movie theaters, and from television coverage of the dead returning home from Vietnam, we are no strangers to the images of war. But to see it happen live, that was a different thing altogether. I remember how very much it felt like a video game, how we all had become so very numb to the violence and to the war. War was something that happened far, far away to people that we would never meet anyway, and it turned my stomach, but only briefly. The other dramatic change that came with Operation Desert Storm was how our military men and women were seen as dramatic heroes who were repelling the forces of evil. With General Norman Schwarzkopf at their lead, the young people who fired the missiles and drove the tanks during Operation Desert Storm were heralded as liberators. This reaction was quite different from the angry response many who came home after fighting in Vietnam received. Rather than enduring insults, the troops returning from Operation Desert Storm were met with parades and speeches and yellow ribbons everywhere. War had indeed changed. And ever since, despite a war's popularity or its lack of support, the troops are seen as hard-working heroes just doing jobs like everyone else, no different from plumbers or cooks or computer programmers. And this gets me back to the paradox that I feel. Yes, I can support the troops, because the troops are made up of young Americans who want an education and job opportunities. But how do I do this and stay true to my belief that war is hell and that peace should be our highest priority? How do I live in a highly militarized country and still work for peace? How do we? Unitarian Universalism has an ambivalent relationship with war. Surprise, surprise there. 
In his extensive paper on the matter, Neil Schister writes, Unitarian Universalist historians point out that ours is neither a peace church nor a militant church. Although within the recent past, three Unitarian Universalists have served as U.S. Secretary of Defense, Elliot Richardson in the Nixon administration and William J. Perry and William S. Cohen in the Clinton years, there is also a strong pacifist strain of thought in the Unitarian and Universalist traditions. In every war waged by the United States, either here or abroad, there have been Unitarian Universalists who were in favor of that war, often because they were some of the people most profiting from it, and there have been Unitarian Universalists who were opposed to the war. That ours is not a peace church like the Quakers or the Mennonites has left us to decide person by person and congregation by congregation whether or not a war is just. At times, this deciding has split congregations. More often, it has meant that most members treated the matter as a private one, and there was very little talk of war or peace in the halls of the church. UU churches have enjoyed the luxury of carrying on with business as usual, much like the rest of the country, especially if there were no sons or daughters, no nieces, nephews, or grandchildren in active combat. We enjoy this luxury until we realize that each and every one of us is directly affected by each war. We enjoy this luxury until we realize that the time, money, and effort put into sustaining the largest military in the world means less money for education and health care and infrastructure. And each of us plays a part in a war's continuation or its completion. Each war is our war, too. My guess is that you have not been to a military recruiter's office recently. Neither have I. But I have a nephew who has been, and I want to tell you a story. My nephew, a young man who did so poorly in high school that he failed to graduate, loves to play video games. World of Warcraft is his chief hobby. How many folks have heard of World of Warcraft? Let's see a show of hands. All right. This interactive online game allows you to engage in cyber warfare on a variety of virtual battlefields. It gives you the chance to carry a gun, hunt down your enemies, and kill them. Of course, there's the possibility of getting killed yourself, but that is what the reset button is for. (laughs) After logging thousands of hours playing World of Warcraft, my nephew decided that his best option after high school would be to join the military. He had seen the glamorous ads on television for the adventurous military life. I'm sure you have seen them too. Travel, education, friendships, responsibility, the latest technology. What's not to like? His response at the recruiter's office was equally positive. 
The recruiter, a fit, friendly man in a perfectly pressed army uniform, told him about the many benefits of a military career. He explained that the army would take care of all of my nephew's needs. He would get an education, be paid well, earn a pension, have good health care, and best of all, he would be proudly serving his country, defending it from all of its many and diverse enemies. He would guard the United States so that all Americans could enjoy the freedoms that the Army gives them. My nephew was thrilled. He filled out the paperwork right away and left the recruiter's office dreaming of his future. A week later, later, a letter from the Army arrived in the mail. My nephew eagerly opened it, expecting to find his orders to attend basic training. Instead, the succinct letter informed him that the Army was not interested in him at that time. No high school diploma, no Army career. My nephew continues to play World of Warcraft many, many hours each day. And maybe my nephew is one of the lucky ones. Maybe he is like the old man in the Chinese story, lucky for not getting into the military. There's young people who do make it in often join one of the and join one of the branches of the armed services because they face incredible odds in the private sector. A college education is simply out of the question for families of most military recruits. Good jobs without a college education are very hard to come by as well. Health care costs for a young family can be quite high And especially if you are a bright, young African-American or Latino, if you live in the inner city, the violence and the poverty that surrounds you would make any promise of a better life look really good. Couple those promises with the invincibility that young people naturally feel, and it's no wonder that the armed forces have far more people applying to be in the military than they can ever take. And then there is the reality of what happens to those young people when they have seen the horrors of war firsthand. Leaving aside the fact that recruiters downplay the fact that soldiers have to be willing to kill other people, the exposure to the horrors of war that soldiers get make World of Warcraft look like a joke. The truth is that young people are destroyed by what they see and do during war and by what they have done to them. Living for months on end in tents in a desert war zone destroys people. Patrolling hostile roads and streets looking for landmines destroys people. Witnessing the killing of impoverished men, women, and children destroys people. Never mind, never ending unwinnable wars destroy people. And when these young people come back from their tour of duty, what then? The current gutting of the Veterans Administration Services 
will leave more and more of these wounded young men and women without the help that they need to heal their bodies and their minds. These wounded will walk among us for the rest of their lives. My nephew is lucky to have been turned down by the army. In their play, The Night Thoreau Spent in Jail, Jerome Lawrence and Robert Lee bring to life the moral dilemma of the transcendentalists during the U.S. war with Mexico. On either July 24th or 25th, it's not real clear, of 1846, Henry David Thoreau refused to pay a tax supporting the war with Mexico and subsequently spent a a night in jail for it. The play imagines what he might have thought and said during that brief incarceration. See if Henry's words do not still ring true in our time. Thoreau speaking from his jail cell to Ralph Waldo Emerson, who has come to visit him. Can you lie in bed every morning? Have your breakfast brought to you, your soft-boiled egg, your toast and tea? Can you lift your right hand to your mouth while your left hand, which is also you and your government, is killing men in Mexico? How can you swallow, Waldo? How can you taste? How can you breathe? You cast your ballot with your right hand, but has your left hand killed Henry Williams running to be free? Emerson Because I don't rant like Jeremiah, do you think I'm not outraged? I do what can be done. Thoreau, that's not enough. Do the impossible. That's what you tell people in your lectures, but you don't really believe any of it, do you? You trundle up and down New England stepping into the lectern with that beneficent smile, accepting the handshake of mayors and the polite applause of little old ladies, you go on singing your spineless benedictions. Emerson, what I say is not spineless. Thoreau, well, occasionally you have sounded a battle cry, but you, you yourself, refuse to hear it. Emerson, you are a very difficult man. (laughs) Thoreau, good. (laughs) The world is too full of easy men. How much do we enjoy our soft-boiled egg, our toast and tea? while some young Americans, mostly people of color and working class, fight wars on our behalf on the other side of the world? How much do we preach sermons and give lectures that we do not believe a word of? How much do we do this with no mind to the results? I'm certainly not going to solve this dilemma this morning, But like Thoreau, I do not want to let us off easy. If we truly want to support the troops and oppose the war, then we are going to have to start acting like it. 
If we were to truly hate war, we would fight three things. We would fight the headlong thrust of the United States further and further toward empire. We live in an empire. We would fight the economic realities that send kids into the military, and we would care for our returning veterans. And we would do these three things because they are the religious response to war. They are the faithful response to violence. Resisting empire, providing for a peaceful life, and caring for our veterans is what God would have us do. For any God worth believing in is a God of peace and a God of justice. There is work to do. May this remembrance of Veterans Day speed us on to this work, not ceasing until peace has come. So be it. Amen.